0: From on the pastoral staff, would you please stand? So thank you, brothers, for being here. We're here for the Southern Baptist Convention. So some of you will know some of them, so feel free and speak to them afterwards. We're going to hang around afterwards. And then there are other uh, brothers and sisters here who we've had fellowship with either at your church or at our church in the past. Just know that we are delighted uh, to be here with you this morning. Uh, your singing is in some ways better than our singing. So it's just a joy to be with you and to worship the Lord. And PJ, I I well remember that conversation. Uh, It was in Minneapolis. It was in the convention center there. It was near the front, over from the speaker side, the left-hand side. (laughs) We were in the second row. And it's a kind of question that I normally don't entertain. People give me questions like that all the time at conferences. And I have a standard response. I listen, appearing to be patient. and, (laughs) and, And then I say, that's probably a good thing for you to talk to your pastor about who knows you. But for whatever reason, with I think a kind of typical PJ tenacity, you were able to ask the question in such a way that I needed to answer you. And I do feel you've been given bad advice as you recounted it. So I tried to liberate you from, I thought, some sort of false legalisms. And uh, yeah, I'm very thankful for the the answers. So praise the Lord. Yeah, so thankful to be with you all. We had a wonderful time with PJ and Francis and the family uh, at CHBC last year. Uh, they were able to be with us for a while, and that was just a great time of fellowship for us. We love partnering with this congregation, uh, it's an honor and a joy. And uh, PJ is too kind to say so, but you've probably heard it's a small church. I invited myself to preach. Um, <laughs> it's the truth. Uh, PJ and I were on the phone, and I asked him, if I, or I texted him, and said, Hey, have I sent you the test yet for the sermon? And uh, it's a little while, and then PJ phones me, and he says, um, basically, I'm summarizing, I didn't invite you to preach. (laughs) But I I wanted to call because, uh, you know, if you think you're preaching here, well, I'd like you to preach here. So what I decided is we wanted to be with you guys for the Lord's Day of Worship, and I wanted to hear PJ preach here. Um, So we're glad to be with you. It's the same word. It's the word of God, whoever the waiter is that brings it, whether it's PJ or me. So here we go. Let's open our Bibles. Um, Let's go to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, and let's listen to God's word. I'm going to begin reading at chapter 2, verse 13. I'm reading the ESV, and I'm going to read the rest of the letter. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your heart and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Friends, just that last verse, or next to the last verse, verse 17, I know that's a bit strange. I think it shows us Paul probably used a secretary. And uh, maybe it was due to his eyesight, but someone actually to write down the letter. And then he, kind of like a signature, would write the own at his own at the end and sign the letter. And you, you see that in some other letters that he writes uh, in the New Testament. Anyway, I pray that as we consider this letter this morning, we may be encouraged in two ways specifically. I pray that we may be encouraged to work. This is the first day of the week. There's a week ahead of us, a week given us to work normally. And I pray that we'll be encouraged to rest. Uh, to rest in God's grace. Again, it's the first day of the week. Jesus got up from the dead. The Father raised the Son. In that, it's all of our hope as we've just been singing about so we can rest in him. I pray that you will receive both of these encouragements and that you'll hear whichever part you may need to hear this morning and that you'll see something of God's wisdom in telling us both. The first thing we want to notice is what so often draws Christians' attention to this little letter, and that is the clear teaching there in chapter 3 that Christians work. Christians work. You see that really there in the middle of chapter 3. Paul really orders them to work, doesn't he, there uh, in chapter 3. Look at verse 12. Now such persons, that's the idle busybodies from verse 11, Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If you want some more background this afternoon on Paul's mission to Thessalonica, just go to the book of Acts, go to Acts 17, and you can read the account of Paul bringing the gospel for the very first time to Thessalonica and of the fact that some were persuaded and joined Paul, uh, but others started a riot and got some of those whom Paul had persuaded arrested and drugged them before the Roman court. And it was was in this tumultuous reception in the largest city of Macedonia that had been penetrated by the gospel and a Christian church established. And it began with with a bit of a splash. If you go back to Acts 17 and you read uh, in verse 4, it began with some of them and a great many of the devout Greeks. So not just the Jews a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Luke notes that, leading women. So, to this varied collection of people, very diverse congregation, now united by faith in Christ, Paul taught this Christian view of work. Paul had no doubt taught them that God made us to work. We think back to the story of the creation, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, once man had fallen in sin, God cursed work, making it toilsome and sweaty and only unpredictably productive. But it was in God's kindness that God left us work that would not be entirely unproductive. Even as the woman would still be able to bear children, only now with cursed pain, so the men would still be able to produce, only now with toil and with sweat. Paul, too, would have known the riches in the wisdom writings of the Old Testament, like in Proverbs, Proverbs 28, 19. He who works his land will have abundant food, but the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. Chases fantasies means like video games and stuff. And there's much more in the book of Proverbs that affirms the value of work. Uh, Paul would later write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has, listen to this, 1 Timothy 5.8, denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. See, the unbeliever is not giving Christ a bad name, at least by what he's doing, but the believer is lying about Jesus. There's an obligation to work. there's a joy in its product. Paul, a little later, writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says in chapter 6, there toward the end of 1 Timothy 6, command the rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share aren't these good verses to write down kind of get these thoughts together in your mind disciple each other by going over these things talk about them during the week I'll give you another one Ephesians 4:28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Now, friends, for some, work is in the home. So work does not equal paycheck. That will not help you to think that. Work does not equal paycheck. But the desire to work, the willingness to work, working as God gives you opportunity is a good Christian thing to do. So as a local church here, Bethany Baptist is helping to spur each other on in the race set before you. And you've got to remember, friends, we're not training for a sprint. We're training for a marathon. And that means that as we help each other, we've got to think of the long view. So we Christians help each other knowing how to pace ourselves in our work, when to push, when to take time off, uh, when to rethink your discipline. When to pull back. So I just want to ask you: do you have models in this congregation that help you know how to work well? That's an important part of the Christian life. Seven days a week? Six of them, I think, traditionally, given to work. Friends, if we say we follow Jesus, part of that must mean we follow Jesus in in our work, whether that's in home or in an office or wherever he's called us to labor for him in a yard or a hospital. I think particularly those of you who serve here as elders need to take this on board, need to be praying for this, need to be praying the Lord to make you good models of this. Older women in the church, you have the exact same kind of responsibility. You are looked to as a model, we know from Titus 2, by the younger women in the church. You need to take this on. And by the way, because I'm looking around, I'm seeing it's a pretty young church. You older women are a lot younger than you think you are. Women often think, oh, I'm not older until I'm like 30 years older than whatever I am right now. Well, actually, if you look around and you see in your church that everybody is 24 and you're 28, welcome to the Older Women Club. (laughs) It's a wonderful club. It's a valued club. It's an honored club, right? But you have a little bit more experience of life and you have a responsibility that comes with us and a blessed privilege. What a wonderful thing to get to show other people and help them know how to live in following Christ. And uh, uh, notice that Paul isn't just telling them to work. He's modeled it for them. So if you look there in chapter 3, verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, and Paul talks about that more when he writes to the Corinthians in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. When he was with them, Paul taught with his life, and with his words that they should work. He had the right to be supported in his preaching of the gospel, but he laid aside that right. That right, He did this sort of prudent calculation, looking around at this group here in Thessalonica. I think they would be helped to see me work, uh, not just at preaching the gospel, but in these other ways. So I think I will help them more. I will be more used to them. I will illustrate the sermons I'm preaching if I show them how I do that as a follower of Jesus, that's just going to be more help to them. So he wanted to be a burden, not a blessing. He wanted the Christian church to be marked, not by laziness, but by productiveness. Now, just a little side note, because some of you go to high school or college and you've been in classes. And this is what historians of a hundred years ago called the Protestant work ethic. And while they misunderstood the theology badly these historians did observe that it was the Protestant nations of Europe which led the way in the Industrial Revolution. And they wondered if part of what happened was the Bible's positive view of work. And that was what was going on in those countries. And they taught uh, that this was the case. And so you may have been, you may have heard this phrase: the Protestant work ethic in school, uh, that's what it is. The people who used that phrase misunderstood it. Badly, they, they thought you could show that you were elect by being prosperous. Uh, the reformers never taught that. That's, that's not accurate at all. Uh, but it is true that the Bible does teach us that we're to work. John Wesley, if you read uh, any of John Wesley in his journals, which is fascinating to read, he complains about this. He says the people who hear the gospel gladly are poor people. But then they get saved and they stop getting drunk. They start going to work on time. They start becoming responsible, then they get rich, and then they get carnal. So Wesley just saw there was this problem, that the Holy Spirit really does change people, but then too often people use those very disciplines the Holy Spirit's taught them for selfish and less than Christian ends. Brothers and sisters, don't be like that. Change, be sanctified by the Holy Spirit's work, But then use those skills, that discipline, that self-control and focus. Use it to create wealth for you, your family, for those who don't have, for other good things to gospelize through Bethany Baptist Church. If you're looking for good investments, just give your money here. Just give it here. I promise if the church has more money than they budgeted for this year, they will find good things to do with it. So if you will work and you're wondering what to do with your money, I'm just saying you investing here will almost certainly be a good kingdom investment. So friends, however you may be feeling today about your job right now, we Christians encourage work because it glorifies God as it reflects something of his character and of what he made us for. And it helps us to enjoy God's creation as we provide for ourselves and for others I have to say, the the longer I've gone on as a Christian and as a pastor, the more I love businessmen. Praise God for people who will help to create jobs, real jobs, for other people as a wonderful calling in life. So those of you who are involved in business, thank you. Thank you for how much you serve other people. Uh, Keep doing that. Pray the Lord make you good at that and make you humble in that and useful to others. I just wonder, are you teaching your children to work so that they won't be a burden to others? That's a loving thing to teach. Now, in Christian churches, we try to teach this by example. We try to live productive lives by the word in sermons like this and other avenues in teaching. Uh, back in our, our uh, church in D.C., we've got a whole course seminar on work uh, to try to help us think through as disciples what it means uh, that we serve God at work. But one more thing Paul says here on work, and that is that they were to warn those who won't work. Just you see that There. And I think that must have been what was going on there that caused Paul to write this and to give this teaching to them. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. And then look on down at verse 11. For we hear the same among you, that some rather among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And then down in verse 14. If anyone does not obey what we said in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, friends, one one particular proviso with this teaching, I want you to understand that this is not aimed at the merely unemployed. This is not aimed at those who desire to work but are unable to. Because they aren't able to physically or because there's no job for them. They, they can't find a job. So those who are not able to be taken care of by working themselves or that their families are unable to be cared for by working for themselves, the local Christian congregation, like Bethany Baptist here, views it as a gospel-displaying privilege to take care of you. It, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it's not bad. It's, it's similar to the way the Lord leaves widows in our church. Why doesn't the Lord kill every married couple at the same time? Because he knows there's a testimony to his sustaining grace when that husband or that wife hangs on for a few years on. It's, it's hard, but it's short in the view of eternity. And it's a wonderful testimony to God's near fellowship, to his provision. So I love the widows in our church. I'm thankful for them. I'm moved by their example. Friends, if you're in a period of poverty, whether that's short-term or long-term, View that as an opportunity for the gospel, for you to trust, trust in the Lord. Let the congregation love you. They want you to, and it will give them a unique opportunity to display the gospel. Praise the Lord how he uses even our weakness to display his strength. Hmm. Okay, Paul is talking to those who are themselves Christians and are able to work. That's who he's got in mind productively, and are choosing instead to mooch off of these Christians. And Paul says about them that they are to be rebuked and kept away from, because that is dangerous. That's a dangerous disease in the body. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this may surprise you, but in one very important sense, churches are not trying to include everyone. So churches are only for sinners. So if you're here today and you don't think you have anything to be saved from, this church has nothing to offer you other than maybe some cookies and coffee afterwards. I mean, some, you know, some friendliness, there's just not much here for you because Christian churches are only for sinners. People who know themselves, to have done things that are wrong and that God is a good God will rightly hold us accountable for. But inside of that, we're really not in a Christian church for, for all sinners. We're really only for a subset of sinners, and that's sinners who will repent and trust in Christ. That's, that's the group that a Christian church is here for, repenting sinners. And we understand that idleness that Paul is describing here is a sin that's to be repented of. So if someone who calls himself a Christian won't repent of it, then we are in love to admonish them and to withdraw our church's affirmation of their claim to follow Christ this might be a rough thing to do, but it's a loving thing to do. Paul here is teaching them to apply the same direct, confronting love that Jesus taught his disciples about in Matthew 18. So it's out of love that we admonish each other. I wonder if you're working as you should. Work, says Paul. But for all Paul says about work... He also taught clearly that we can't earn our salvation by working for it. So even more fundamentally than the fact that we are to work, number two, Christians are saved by grace. And brothers and sisters, there is so much richness about here in the end of two and all of chapter three that I am just, I am not doing a full exposition. I'm just going to run through and give you six truths about grace. Six little jewels to take with you to encourage you for this week. Any one of which you can pick up. Maybe you pick up number one tomorrow and you meditate on it. You'll pick up number two. Think about it more on Tuesday. So here's like one each day of the week to get you through to the next Lord's Day. Okay? So number one, this grace is God's favor contrary to what we deserve. This grace is God's favor contrary to to what we deserve. Look there at verse third, chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you either as the first fruits or in the beginning to be saved through the sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. And then he says down in chapter 2, verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. So, we wouldn't need to be saved if we weren't in danger of God's judgment. Uh, I was talking to a 70 year old named Glenn on Monday on the ferry from Cape May, New Jersey to Lewis, Delaware. And after talking to Glenn about religion for a little while, I asked him pretty directly about his own understanding and his own uh, beliefs. And after listening to him talk for a few minutes, he described himself as spiritual but not religious. Uh, I said, So, Glenn, you don't really think you have anything to be saved from. He said, yeah, that's right. So, friends, that's the first thing you need to be clear about if you want to understand a Christian diagnosis of your experience in life. The Bible says that the most basic thing that's wrong with your life is probably none of the circumstances you have in mind this morning. It's actually your relationship with God. It's how you're relating to him. And it's how you have related to him. You've ignored what he wants, and you've lived your life doing what you want. That's what the Bible calls with the short word sin. That's not right. It's not what we're supposed to do. And because God is a good God, He will judge us for that. We are in danger of His judgment as sinners. Christians don't take our identity ultimately from our work. We take our identity from Christ's work. This is this is the good news that all of our work is never going to be sufficient to make us okay with God because of the things we've done that are wrong. But it's Christ's work where the Son of God became truly man and he lived a perfect life, Jesus of Nazareth, and died a death that was a perfect, complete offering. God raised him from the dead, Paul says, for our justification. And he ascended and presented that sacrifice and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high And he began then his rule and reign as the messianic king and priest, the high priest that we all need. We're in in Hebrews right now in our church back in D.C., so those images are in my mind. Friends, that's what Jesus has become for us. He has become what he was not before he was incarnate. He has become what he was not before he was sacrificed. He has become what he was not before he was raised and sat at his father's right hand. He has become for us a high priest. He has become for us uh, an offering, a sacrifice. So friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you can never work your way into a good relationship with God. You can work your way maybe into a good relationship with your boss at work, and that's great. But far more important than that is your relationship with God. And for that, you need somebody else's work. You need Christ's work. And that's the identity that you can have today If you want to know more about that, talk to any members of this lovely congregation afterwards. They would love to help you understand what it would mean for you to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ. But, friends, this is all by by God's grace. That's why when Paul writes this letter at the beginning, he thanks God for them. That's why uh, we thank God for Christians. That's why P.J. prayed the prayer he just prayed a few minutes ago. Because God makes Christians. Do you see that all over the place? Look there in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, beloved by the Lord. God chose you to be saved. We haven't earned or deserved his love by our work. God loved us, yes, we see here in chapter 2, verse 13, and, and again in verse 16. But all the encouragement and hope that we have is, he says in verse 16, through grace. And we find in these sentences what we find in the rest of the Bible, that God chose us for salvation. What did God say to his chosen people in Deuteronomy 7 when they were wondering why they had been chosen, why they were the chosen people? Deuteronomy 7, 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, because you had 47,000 churches. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because, here's the reason, the Lord loved you. Friends, Christianity is a religion of grace. Now, if you want to grow in your humility, this is the doctrine you want to study this week. Study the doctrine of God choosing us. Study the doctrine of election. If you want to grow in steadfastness, in endurance, in faithfulness, study this doctrine of election. Paul clearly learned to talk this way from Jesus. Just turn in your Bibles with me for a minute, back over to the Gospels. This is all straight from Jesus. He's the one who talks this way. Look in Mark 13 when Jesus is talking about the the end of the world. And he says in Mark 13, verse 20, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Why didn't you know Jesus was a Presbyterian? No, no, no. Jesus was Jewish. No, but Jesus was very clear here that the elect, those God whom has chosen, are those whom he has set his special love on. Look two verses later down in, in verse 22. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But as we just confessed earlier in the statement of faith from your own church, it's not possible for them to lead astray the elect. Because they are chosen by God. Or look down at verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather whom? His elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. See, it's Jesus who talks like this. Or go over to Luke's gospel. Look at Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. He's telling that wonderful story about the persistent widow. You know, the one who just will not take no or ignoring for an answer and just keeps on going. And look at, look at what Jesus says. And the fact he just says this by the by kind of shows how fundamental an assumption this is in his own thinking and teaching. Luke 18 verse seven. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Friends, Christians are God's elect We're not his because we've done anything to deserve his love, but because he has freely chosen to love us. He's elected us. Go over to John's gospel. You see this so clearly. Go to John 15. There's so many places we can go, but go to John 15. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Or then in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now in some sense, he's talking to those disciples of his especially. But in another sense, those disciples stand for all Christians, all those whom the Lord has chosen. Or you turn over to, to chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer. Look there as Jesus prays, chapter 17, verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, For they are yours. Friends, this is how Jesus taught. And then you go over into Acts, go to the book of Acts, look in chapter 13. Look at Acts chapter 13. This is how we see the early apostles' teaching. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? All those who were appointed to eternal life. Or let's go into Paul's letters. Go to Romans chapter 8. Very famous part there. Romans chapter 8. Let's just pick it up at at verse 29. Romans chapter 8. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him Graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And when you go into chapter 9, Paul's still talking about this. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 22, he says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Friends, we're getting into deep mystery here. There are things that we can't fully answer, but please notice. That the only way we're saved is by the grace of God as he chooses us. Chapter 11 of Romans, verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, it's not just the Romans, go to 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose. What is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's why you want to understand the doctrine of election. That's why you want to know this in your bones. So that let's say you do end up working hard, and let's say you do well, friend, you could become proud. But you need to realize you have no basis for pride whatsoever. You and I have no reason to boast before God. He's so clear in his word. And then if we go to the first letter of the Thessalonians that he sends. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so back to our own passage here in 2 Thessalonians. This grace is God's favor. It's contrary to what we have earned, what we have deserved. This grace is contrary to God's favor. Now the other five jewels I'm going to give you much more briefly. But I just thought, ah, doctrine of election, how often do we hear this taught unclearly? There's so much in the New Testament about it. It's very countercultural. Let's just make sure we realize they don't think this is just a one off in, in 2 Thessalonians or just a one off in Paul. This is what Paul learned from Jesus. This is what Jesus Christ clearly taught. This is what the Word of God teaches. So, second thing about grace this grace comes through faith. This grace comes through faith, through our believing the truth. Did you notice that in those first couple of verses in our passage? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved or in the beginning to be saved from the beginning through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. That's the news that they heard from Paul. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this grace of God comes to us through faith. That's why Paul says that he called you to this through our gospel. So friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you should believe this message about Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm telling you the truth. Uh, This congregation is is testifying it. Uh, This is your only hope for God to forgive your sins. This message about Jesus. You must believe in Jesus Christ. This is why we Christians... Tell others all the time about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Christianity is not about evoking an emotion, but about believing a claim, believing a person. We experience God's grace through faith in what Christ has earned for us. God elects us to believe in him. And this is why we read our Bibles. This is why we give ourselves regularly to hear God's word read and preached. No one God chooses for salvation comes without holiness holiness, or without faith. Saving faith will not be alone, but faith alone is that which saves. The saving righteousness is all of Christ. It is him that we believe in and so are saved. So God's grace comes through faith. Number three, this grace brings hope. This grace brings hope. Notice that God's character of faithfulness, he'll do what he says, is the basis for our confidence. He will strengthen and protect you, Christian. Look there in chapter 3 at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So this grace brings hope to us, encouragement for ourselves. Or back up in chapter 2, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. You see, this is the confidence the Lord gives us, a confidence in his work that he's doing, even in others. Look at what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. And ultimately, of course, God's purpose in this grace is for us to share Jesus Christ's glory, to share his resurrection. As he plainly says in chapter 3, verse or 2 rather, verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or if you look back in chapter 1, you turn over, he put it this way in In chapter 1, verse 12, he explained his prayer for them. He told them what he was praying for them. So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. He wanted the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be glorified in these Thessalonian Christians. So he prayed that and he told them that he was praying that for them. So to to share in Christ's glory like this is to share in his resurrection with all that means about the reversal of the effects of the fall and of the curse in the, in the physical body, in our entire person and character. We could never work enough to earn that kind of blessing, but God graciously gives us this hope in Christ. So, friend, what's your hope today? You're hoping in something. Maybe you're entirely satisfied with your life right now and you assume it will never change. I think the number of people of whom that's true in this room are zero. Okay, that means you are hoping for something. What are you hoping for? Is your hope big enough for the trials that you're facing? Is it worth it? Maybe you're somebody who's heard this gospel before. Maybe you're a teenager. You've heard this gospel since you were a kid. You know? but you've not really accepted it. You've listened. You're weighing it. Nobody asks you directly what you think. So you're kind of okay listening to it. But what about you? Are you going to accept this good news of Jesus Christ? Maybe you're pursuing some other hope now. But friend, what if that vision that you're pursuing is only an illusion, a mirage that you'll never get to? What what if your real dream is behind you? Left when you last ignored the gospel? Would you turn around to find it? If you're not a Christian, the Bible says here that you have no hope of mercy when you die. None. Not not even the chance of a lottery ticket win. Nothing. No hope. God's everlasting mercy is given in Christ. Jesus taught, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For the Christian, our best life is never now in this world. Difficult family situations, difficult times in the office, all those things will pale in the light of the glory that's previewed here as this congregation meets every Lord's Day, every Sunday morning as you meet around the Lord's table or the baptismal pool or just this pulpit to hear God's promises given out. And as you hear each other singing his praises, this is the great goal that we Christians share and that we are are running toward, being raised to new life, the coming of the Father hereafter. This is our hope forever. Grace brings hope. Number four, this grace doesn't preclude our effort. We need to stand firm in the message we first believed. Did you notice that in chapter 2, verse 15? So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. They had enemies within their church, persecutors who would destroy them, false teachers who would mislead them, freeloaders who would suck them dry. Against all of these, they would need to stand firm. Sometimes people get the idea of grace confused with apathy. As if God would say a heavenly whatever to anything we do or think. But that is not at all what grace means. God's grace, the favor that we receive, though we haven't merited it, this grace brings with it a call to us to hold firm to the message of Christ, giving himself as a ransom for many. The fact that God has sovereignly determined the end of a matter does not mean that there are not means that he uses to bring it about. If this is complicated to you, talk to Peter, <laughs> Or just think about your own parenting. You decide what you want to happen, and you are kind of sovereign in your family, but you have to use means to bring it about. You can't just decide, you know, Sarah will make up her bed. You have to tell Sarah, hey, make up your bed. Or maybe better, show her, help her make up her bed till she gets used to that. We don't merit God's grace. But God's grace doesn't mean that we don't work. So our work, even if it's repetitive or stressful or uninspiring, our work is part of what God calls us to do by his grace. Bethany Baptist Church is here with her statement of faith and her church covenant as tools in the hands of the Holy Spirit and of each other to help each member stand firm. So grace doesn't preclude our effort as Christians. Okay, but how do we have strength for such effort as we're called to here? Number five, disgrace gives strength. So grace doesn't preclude effort. Number four. But number five, this grace gives strength. Our dependence on God doesn't cause us to relax into weakness, but rather we rely on him, and so we're strengthened. It's God's grace that gives us strength to stand firm in our life and doctrine. Look again, chapter 2, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So how are you comforted, consoled, encouraged to stand firm? Friends, that's the work of God's Spirit. That's what God the Holy Spirit does. How do you keep your hope fresh and your strength firm? God gives the very strength that he requires of us for honoring him in the details of our daily life, at work and at home or in the office or at school. This is the testimony of every true Christian, isn't it? We know that God calls us to be this way, and sometimes we know we don't have the strength to be the way God calls us to be, and yet we are that way. How how does that happen? If you've ever looked at some Christian that you've known and you've thought, yeah, he seems like not much. Pretty ordinary. How could he care for his father like that? How could he put up with this from this friend of his, the way they're treating him? How could he keep going when we've mocked him like we have? Well, you'd be right in thinking that the Christian himself is pretty ordinary. But what you're not accounting for is the fact that God gives strength to ordinary Christians. God lets ordinary Christians display his strength and power in our lives. God himself would strengthen these Thessalonian believers here in every good deed and word. And he'll strengthen you too, my brother. He'll strengthen you, my sister. That's what he does. Your weakness is an opportunity for his strength to display itself. So if you're here feeling weak this morning, too weak to go on, you are in the right place. You came to the right meeting. Other religions are going to tell you, hey, here's the way you need to live. You you should do this. You You need to get to it. But the Christian faith will tell you God tells you to do this, and he gives you his very own spirit to enable you to do it. What was Augustine's prayer? Oh, God, give what you command and command what you will. It's true, isn't it? When God commands the light to shine out of the darkness or the dry bones to live, or the deaf man to hear. How does it happen? How does that life, that strength, that vitality come? It can't come from nothingness. It can't come from death. No, friends, it comes from God, from his spirit, which accompanies his command and brings life. That's how so many of you have come to Christ here in this room, by hearing this man preach this word. It's not that he's given you tips and you've figured out your life. God, the Holy Spirit, who's much bigger than this church, much bigger than this preacher or this preacher. It's God who has used the truth of his word, accompanied by spirit, come into your heart through your ears. And he has given you new birth and a new life. And he's changed you. He gives life and strength As we assemble this meeting right now, according to Hebrews 10, 25 is to encourage each other and all the more as we see the day approaching. So we, we sing his praises and we pray and we hear God's word read and preached on Sunday mornings. Uh, We have other ways to praise him and pray together and study his word, share stories of his provision, in our lives in all these ways, God's grace gives strength. That's number five. Number six, this grace stirs up prayer. This grace stirs up prayer. That's why we pray for the word, the gospel, to spread to others as it has spread to us. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may uh, spread ahead, speed ahead, and be honored as it happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. You see there in verse 2, this is why Paul prayed for deliverance in Corinth so that he could keep on spreading the word. And that's why we pray for God to preserve us, putting our hearts, it says, to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Beautiful phrase in verse 5, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Christ patiently, steadfastly, suffering for us enduring for us. Paul prays for that same perseverance in these Christians. Christ endured the cross for the joy set before him. He persevered. And so Paul prayed with these Christians. He concludes the letter down in chapter three, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way the Lord be with you all. And Paul even prayed for them to know God's grace. Verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So that's why as individuals we pray. That's why you pray as a church. Uh, In our church, you know, we pray several times in our morning service just like you have. We gather other times for prayer. Friends, God's grace stirs up prayer. When we see his power and we feel those answers in our lives, we become witnesses of them, it just encourages us to turn to him all the more and ask all the more. Friends, we should conclude. It's, It's afternoon now. I don't don't know how long PJ usually preaches, but well, I think it's a good time for us to land. Here we go. (laughs) I hope that um, as good as work is, and I hope hope you've seen that in the Bible, work is good. Life is not about just work. We work as a way to care for ourselves. Uh, We work as a way to care for our families. We work as our way to care for our church and those about us who are in need. What about you? Do you work simply to get rich? You know that you can even be rich in this present life, but not rich toward God. And Jesus makes it clear that such a man, money rich, but God poor. Do you know what Jesus calls him? A fool. One minister observed, the three grand essentials of happiness are something to do someone to love, and something to hope for. Something to do, someone someone to love, something to hope for. What's your happiness today? According to this book, we've all sinned, and actions do have consequences. We'll get what we deserve, we'll get what we've worked for. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. We're responsible for how we've lived. We will get paid but have you fully considered the message of God's grace in Christ that we've studied today? The message that Paul preached to the Thessalonians. And it's still true for us here today. Jesus has taken the wages for our sin. As we were just singing, he has paid it all. And so if we've repented of our sins and placed our trust in him, he has paid for our sins too. J.C. Ryle put it so well. It is true that we are sinners, but Christ has borne our sins. It is true that we are poor, helpless debtors, but Christ has paid our debts. It is true that we deserve to be shut up forever in the prison of hell. But thanks be to God, Christ has paid a full and complete ransom for us. The door is wide open. The prisoners may go free. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would work in each heart here to understand your call to work and your gift of grace. We pray, Lord, that you would work this in our own lives individually and in the life of this congregation for our good and for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.